Episode 2, Drop It, No Don't. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a peacekeeper. Based on a true and factual account, some details have been changed due to security, confidentiality and operational concerns, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. Part of the difficulties of the first few weeks in mission was adapting to the conditions, not just the heat, but our working environment as well. We found ourselves working 16-hour days, seven days a week, racing from job to job, mostly to back up and provide support at what were serious and dangerous situations. Prior to our arrival in mission, we had been trained, briefed and instructed with a particular mindset and we had an expectation of what was lying in front of us. But apart from the training, the rest of it very quickly went out the window. I have to be quite careful what I say here, but we quickly became very sceptical of our pre-mission briefing. We had entered the mission under the impression we were to perform a mentoring and instructional role to the Indigenous Police Force. And whilst we did eventually perform that role, it wasn't to happen until the conditions improved. Whoever had provided the in-country intelligence to our handlers and our advisors had clearly got it wrong, as from day three onwards, and for the next few months, it was, as we say, a shit fight. I don't know what defines a civil war exactly, but from the moment we'd landed, and for quite some time yet, the hell that surrounded us evolved rapidly, and it was beginning to envelope us. As the heat was endless, most of us came to prefer night shifts, as it provided a small degree of respite from the sun. Now that we were a couple of weeks into the mission, I found I was still consuming enormous amounts of water, but it wasn't solely due to the heat. The light blue helmet of the United Nations, combined with a cumbersome bulletproof vest, weighed heavily upon us. The helmet provided no airflow, and the unbreathable material of the vest wrapped entirely around our upper body. Predominantly made of Kevlar and heavy enough in itself, a small yet heavy ceramic plate was also placed centrally into the front. Its express purpose was to stop the most serious of projectiles to the most important organ. While I appreciated and understood the purpose and the value of the vest, I was to later discard it in the mission as it just proved too restrictive and it slowed me down. Instructed and rostered to work with our international colleagues, we found we naturally gravitated to each other instead. Situations become so violent and dangerous, we much preferred to rely on the capabilities of each other and our own equipment. The vehicles were our initial problem, even if they did eventually prove to be reliable. Previous contingent had managed to attract heavy damage to them. If it wasn't the odd bullet or dart hole, the seriousness of those darts I will speak more of in a coming episode, there was some form of damage literally to every panel. You were considered lucky if you had a vehicle with at least one piece of glass intact. You were even luckier if it was the driver's window or the windscreen that may provide you with some small extra degree of protection. This was a hell of a place. Fortunately, we were well supplied and we were armed with solid and capable operational equipment. We were issued with the internationally used and respected Glock 17, which is identified as a capable and a versatile firearm. We had access to thousands of 9mm rounds for the Glocks, as well as an endless supply of what would prove to be our most commonly used and relied upon piece of equipment, capsicum spray in party packs. 
party pack is a, a larger canister of the capsicum that is nine or ten times the capacity of the smaller handheld ones that are typically used by law enforcement. This would allow us to deploy longer bursts of spray over greater distances and for longer periods. But one operational disappointment was the loss of the use of rubber bullets. Rubber bullets are a close range, less lethal option as they're designed to deliver a blow that causes minimum long-term trauma and no or very little penetration to the skin. The UN removed them from us very early in the mission, apparently on humanitarian grounds. But the problem with this was it created a big hole in our equipment options as there was no middle ground. Capsicum spray is a very effective non-lethal option, but without rubber bullets, the next step up in our arsenal from the spray was the very unforgiving 9mm round. We weren't happy with the decision by the UN to remove the rubber bullets. Not that we had a choice, but we respected and complied with the order. The irritating bit was their decision to allow other local forces to continue its use. The benefit of having access to these rounds was never more evident when, on one given occasion, we were chasing this group of young gang members in and out of a number of houses. Always keeping them running ahead of us, we couldn't spray them, and obviously we're not going to use the lethality of the Glock. However, fortunate for us, the local forces got involved and they ended up hitting them with the non-lethal rubber bullets. Not only did it put a nice-sized bruise on their backs, which immediately turned black, it also knocked them to the ground and therefore easily into our grasp. That one particular incident was a worthy catch that day as we found a cache of guns under the floorboards in one of the houses. So let me paint the picture of this dark, hot, eventual night. Hayden was a member of my contingent and he was working a night shift with a UN police colleague from Pakistan. On this night, he also had two local police officers in training in the back, along with a young local interpreter. Now, Hayden is what I refer to as a solid copper, and we had a fair bit in common. We were both middle-aged, average height, both had a strong build, he was married to a copper, and they had a couple of teenage kids. He'd been in the police force a couple of more years than I, and he had a strong and varied policing background. He was experienced and very capable, and in the simplest of words, he was a bloody nice bloke. However, what was to occur this night would have a profound effect on him and potentially changed him for a long time to come. So he's five up in the car and they were tasked to perform a rolling grid pattern of the back blocks around the capital. As this had been an underdeveloped and war-torn country for a number of years, the infrastructure was, let's say, either non-existent or mostly well beyond repair. They did have electricity, but it was extremely unreliable and there was next to no streetlights. It always made for an inky black night. Not only was the lack of power an obvious problem, the vast majority of the roads were in very poor condition. They were heavily pitted with potholes. Some of them had random smatterings of bitumen, but they were difficult to drive and they slowed you down. This just added to the dangers of patrolling, as a lot of the time you were forced to slow to a crawl so you could negotiate your way through the holes. But by doing this, you would become an easy, slow-moving target for projectiles. Also, the gangs began to use different techniques to attack us. As they learned some of our more regular patrol routes, they would place enough debris on the road, particularly just after a bend, that you wouldn't be able to pass through. They would lie and wait for you, so when you passed a given point, they would quickly throw more rubbish onto the road, like logs and large rocks but this time they'd be throwing it behind you, so you became trapped in between. 
and that's when they would attack the vehicle. It was the most simplest of ambushes, yet clever and could occur anywhere. So you needed to be switched on at all times. You had to be alert to your surroundings and prepared to act, as a patrol of this nature would always be dangerous in such a dark and foreboding place. Arriving at an intersection, Hayden's partner alerted him to a single male squatting down at the side of the road, an innocuous white plastic bag on the ground in front of him. As other cars were a rare commodity in this part of the world, more so this time of night, Hayden didn't need to worry about the formalities of parking, and he stopped his four-wheel drive in the middle of the road. Now, this wasn't an act of laziness or a case of the copper's greatest enemy, the C-word. This was a practice and learned technique. It's a method that's used worldwide to allow immediate and direct access to your vehicle should you require extra protection if the situation goes south. And no, it's not the C-word you're thinking of. So Hayden and the other four leave their vehicle and they approach this male. No different to any of us in the mission, Hayden had little, if any, command of the local language, so he used the universal motion of an upward flick of his head for the male to stand up. But he ignored Hayden and he remained squatting. Without having to say or do anything further, the interpreter quickly got involved and he barked a few sharp words towards the male. This time, he stood up, slowly, actually very slowly, if not too slowly. Now, it's funny how what I call the spidey hairs on the back of your neck rise. When someone chooses not to do an action to comply with an instruction or they act in a way that's contrary to what they've been asked, you automatically move the threat level up a notch. So Hayden took half a step backwards. They were now roughly four metres apart and Hayden knew that he was well within the seven metre danger range, which is the critical distance where most police shootings occur. Hayden locked his eyes onto the male while he peripherally monitored any movement of his hands. We'd learnt very, very quickly that the hands can tell a very different story to the eyes. Understand the back half step was purposeful and it was deliberate as by taking a small, simple movement like that allowed him to offset his position and it puts him into a bladed stance towards a male. Being bladed is always the preferred position should a fast reflexive action have to occur. Now properly balanced, Hayden could strike powerfully with physical force if he was required to. He could duck down or comfortably rock back on his heels to move out of the reach of a strike. Importantly, he was also now in a position to not only strongly protect and defend his equipment, it provided him with fast direct access to it. So without taking his eyes from the mail, Hayden instructed his interpreter to ask him what was in the bag. The interpreter gave the male what Hayden hoped was an instruction to empty the contents, as typically a lot of the meaning and intent was always lost in the translation. However, the interpreter seemed to get it right, but again the male just took that little bit too long to comply. He paused for that extra one or two seconds before responding to the instruction given. Another delay like that will always earn you an extra uptick on the threat level scale. So this time, Hayden's response to the inaction was to move his hands to rest against his stomach, one hand loosely over the other, which is the ultimate position to have your hands should you need to make a fast immediate reaction to your equipment. It's strange how you mentally start to calculate and weigh up the reason for the male's attitude towards the instruction. You consider things like, is he alcohol or drug affected? Is he anti-police? Or is he just being non-compliant because he's already done something about to, or has he got something to hide? 
Either way, you expect the worst before you expect the best. I'll digress for a minute. Here's a question I used to ask new trainees. Are you better off dealing with a yes person, in other words, someone who indicates they're going to do what they're told, or a no person? What do you think? Most people respond they would prefer to deal with a yes person because they've indicated the person will do what they've been asked or instructed. I'm going to disagree. With a yes person, they could say, yep, I'll do what you asked, but they could easily swing back the other way when you're either off guard or thinking that they're being compliant. I much preferred the no person because that way I knew their attitude and I knew where they were going to take this from the beginning. Anyway, let's go back to Hayden. So the male complied with the interpreter's request, but not before giving him a disgusted look. He bent down, reached into the white bag and stood up again. This time, he had a hand grenade in his hand. I'll pause here for a moment and ask you a couple of obvious questions. What would you do and how would you react? However, before you answer, in the amount of time I just allowed you to consider what you would do and how you'd react, was about as much time as it took for the male to reach across and pull the safety pin out of the grenade. Now this definitely changed it up and everything that came next happened in one fast blur. Hayden heard the other four in his group just turn and run. He later learned the two trainees and the interpreter ran and ran and ran. It turned out they were so deeply stressed by the fear of this night, they didn't return to work for the next two days and no one actually knew where they went. Hayden's reaction was decisive and fast. He ripped the Glock out of his holster and punched it out. He aimed the forward sight over the top of the upheld grenade and pointed it directly between the eyes of the male. A life-threatening and life-defining position on what was a dark black night in a foreign country involving just two people. One predictable, the other unpredictable, and he's got a hand grenade in his hand with the safety pin removed. It's the obvious shit-your-pants question. What do you do? As we don't train for this, I'm thinking a few random options quickly ran through the evaluate-then-react part of Hayden's brain. First option, fire around and drop the mail, as we say. Let's evaluate the result of doing that. So the pin's removed and the hand grenade's now armed. It's going to drop to the ground along with him. Let's scratch option one. Option two, don't fire. The result of that? So the male chooses to drop it where he stands or he rolls it towards you. Nope, let's remove that one. Option three, run. The result of that, he decides to throw it at you. That's a possible option, but I'd scratch that as well. Option four, and possibly the last option. Some elite guys in the military, they have a process where one of them will consider jumping onto the grenade, therefore placing yourself over it in the hope the bulletproof vest absorbs the bulk of the explosion. Let's consider implementing that. Fuck off. Hayden resorted to what I feel would be the only human, natural and expected option of the vast majority of us, well trained or not. The Glock directly on target, he screamed at the male. Darun, Darun. Darun is one of the few local words we had learnt and used regularly. Translated, it effectively means down or at a stretch, put it down. Now I know what you're thinking and I'm probably going to agree, this is not possibly the best instruction to give. 
But in Hayden's defence, you and I have had all the time in the world to reflect, and he's had the minutest of moments. Hayden continued to scream at him to put it down. There is no real way of determining how long the standoff lasted, as time would mentally and physically feel like it's standing still. Could have been 5, 10, 15 seconds, or even a minute. It's an incredibly difficult, precarious, and life-defining moment, as by having your finger on the trigger and being in such a predicament, it's very, very human to continue applying pressure on that trigger. It is a very sensitive and light-pressured trigger on the Glock, and the amount of pressure he was inadvertently applying would deactivate one of the three passive mechanical safeties, which made the firearm that much closer to firing. I can tell you it would involve a hell of a lot of training and fortitude not to apply any more pressure than required at that point in time, particularly when your focus is elsewhere. Hayden yelled and yelled as time continued to slow, and then it just froze. Slowly, ever so slowly, the male slid the pin back into the hand grenade and lowered it back into the plastic bag. Hayden immediately pounced upon him, forced him to the ground, and plastic cuff tied him to the rear. It was only then he thought about breathing again. Now far, far removed from the point, the army later determined that though it was real, the grenade was inert or inactive. And yet, that means nothing to change the seriousness and difficulty of that night. Even though he was never recognised for his actions and successful handling and resolution of that incident, Hayden is big in my eyes. He dealt with it in a way that everyone lived to tell the tale, solely due to him. But it doesn't end there. Not long after that event, a change understandably came over Hayden as he struggled to put it fully behind him. Living within our compound, we took turns of catching up with him to monitor, share a beer and to swap a story. But just to add to the stress of it all, one particular night I popped over to his room with a couple of warm beers in my hand for a catch-up and to see how his day had been. It was funny, we always seemed to be drinking warm beers most of the time as it was nigh impossible to cool them when the power was so intermittent or non-existent. So I found Hayden inside his small room, seated at his table, a pack of playing cards and multiple empty beer cans spread out in front of him. He offered me a beer, but when he stood up, he lost his balance and fell to the floor. I gave him a hand up, thinking he's probably had five beers too many, but this wasn't to be the case. There was a pool of dried blood on the tiles, which had partially stuck his bare foot to the floor. I grabbed the first aid kit that each of us had been supplied and used multiple saline ampules to clean up his foot. We only ever used the ampules as the local water was so unfit for drinking, we couldn't even use it to irrigate a wound. And we had been previously warned that using that water on something such as a wound could potentially lead to an infection or make an existing injury worse. So with his foot clean, I could see a three or four inch slash to the soft inner side of his foot that had caused the blood loss and made his foot stick to the floor. But it wasn't the slash or the size of it that bothered me. I was far more concerned with the two distinct puncture marks close together at the end of his big toe. As far as we could work out, something's happened when he wandered outside at some point for a piss and a smoke. I actually still have a very vivid mental picture of how it must have been. He would have been standing out the front of the shithole for a room we all had in the dark of the night, standing in the dirt next to numerous bushes, and in Hayden's case it would have been a smoke in the mouth, a 
hand on the hip and the other where it needs to be to direct the water onto the plants. When probably wham, some random snake up and nips him. Now I'm guessing with a couple of beers hiding under his belt, he wouldn't have felt too much at all. But it was a big point of concern for me. I made a couple of quick calls and, and I was to be reassured that even though there were various types of snakes in the country, all of them were deemed non-poisonous and non-lethal. However, as it is with all snake bites, it could still be highly possible he could develop a bacterial infection from the fangs, so he assured me he would get it looked at in the morning. To this day, I don't think Hayden knows I checked in on him a couple of times through that night, just to make sure he was good. After all, after surviving someone pulling a hand grenade on him, I didn't want to lose one of our better operators to the simplicity of a non-lethal snake bite. Still thinking about the C word? The C word is the greatest enemy of all law enforcement officers. Complacency. If it doesn't nip you one day, it'll bite you the next.